The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to First um, John, the book of First John. We're going to be looking in chapter 1. In your pew Bibles, it's page 1082. Uh, if you have your own Bible, but you're somewhat new uh, to the Scriptures, you can go to the, the very end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and work backwards. Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, and you will find it. And we are in chapter 1. Um, it's great to be um, sharing the Word this morning with my brothers and sisters. Uh, I got to sit on the front row right next to our pastor hear his joyful singing voice. (laughs) I'm very grateful, Nathan, the Lord sent you to be our preacher. I'll say that. Um. (laughs) It'll come to you at lunchtime uh, if you think. (laughs) I'm getting old, y'all. I forgot my belt this morning, and um, I'm having these these new realizations that make me realize like I'm, you know, that I'm entering, um, into, uh, the downhill slope of life. Um, you know, some of those, I don't know, like, is there a state like you wake up, I, I need some of you older saints to, to help me. You wake up one day and, and, and prunes are now an acceptable dietary choice. I don't know. But for me, I know I'm getting old. My girl, so I have teenage daughters now and they very helpfully point out to me, um, the aging process, uh, if I happen to miss it. And one of the, the, the ways that I know that I'm getting old is because, I guess, sort of like waking up and prunes being acceptable, suddenly one morning I woke up and country music was acceptable to listen to, and I don't know how that happened. I didn't used to like country music. Now I find myself listening to country music. My daughters say it's because you're getting old. This is why uh, your taste has changed. Um, there's something about country music. Um, a lot of the newer stuff is not great, but, but there is, I'm, I'm going to argue, there's a, a picture of the gospel in there. Um, it's just like a, re, you know, reverse image, mirror image of, of the gospel. You know, if you play country music backwards, you get a picture of the restoration of all things in there, right? Because he gets his truck back, the girl back, the dog back, like everything's restored um, to him. But I find, I do, I find myself listening to country music more and more, and, and I don't know why I ask myself, um, but the other day I was driving around, and I heard a, a song for the first time. I hadn't heard this particular country song. Um, it's by Darius Rucker. Um, let's tell you how old I am. I remember when Darius Rucker was called Hootie. Who remembers when he was Hootie? Thank you. All right. All right. Gen Xers, I see you. Um, now he's there. I, I assume that's his real name and, and not like another stage name, but Darius Rucker. And he had a, a song that, as I listened to the lyrics, um, I actually found quite profound. I'd like to share some of them with you. Um, what if I told you, he says, what if I told you sometimes I lose my faith? I wonder why someone like you would even talk to me. What if I told you there's no fixing me because everybody's already tried? Would you stay? Would you leave? I could wait. It'll all come out eventually. If I told you all the stupid things I've done, I'd blamed on being young But I was old enough to know, I know. If I told you the mess that I can be when there's no one there to see, would you look the other way? Because you love me anyway. I'm not going to vouch for country music as a genre, um, but I think those are pretty good lyrics, actually. Would you love me anyway? I, I think... Darius Rucker and, you know, whoever 
wrote this song has tapped into what is a universal human longing. I think deep down, what is reflected here is the most significant yearning of our hearts. I'm convinced of this. Beneath all of the desires, beneath all the longings, the deepest desire and the deepest longing that each of us has, no matter how we express it, is that we would be totally known and at the same time totally loved. We all want to be loved, we would say, but really, if we could express it accurately, what we would say is this, we really want to be loved anyway. And it's the fear, actually, it's the fear that that kind of love doesn't exist, that that kind of love isn't real. In fact, that's kind of what he's expressing in the song. I'm telling you all this, but it's out of fear that once you know really what's going on in me, once you know the real me, you, you know, would you, you're probably going to walk away just like everybody else. It's the fear that that kind of love isn't real, isn't true, that it cannot be ours by any means that prompts us to put up walls, to put up protective layers, to to sort of create these facades for us, to manage our images. We desperately want to believe that we can be loved anyway, but we secretly fear that such a love isn't possible. Well, it's this kind of love, in fact, that, that John the Apostle isn't just daring us to believe, but is outright declaring is ours for the having in his first letter here. In fact, if I could sum up 1 John, it would be really out of the statements we find in 1 John chapter 4, that God is love. Let's love one another because God is love. Anyone who loves has to be from God because God is love. And if you don't love, then you probably don't know God. But as he teases this out and, and prefaces this all-encompassing uh, point for us, this, this kind of love, the, the I love you anyway kind of love, He's speaking really strongly right out of the gate about coming out from hiding in order to experience this love. Let's begin reading 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5, 6, and 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying. And are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Let's pray once again. Let's just ask our Heavenly Father to bless this time that we have together. Heavenly Father, we are um, all different kinds of people, different walks of life different generations, different ethnicities, different social statuses, different religious backgrounds. And we've come into this room with a variety of motivations and expectations, some of them honorable, some of them not. But deep down, you know what is the cry of each of our hearts. And I pray that you, um, by your Holy Spirit, would be planting this word deep enough to the core of ourselves that we would be changed. We know that your word can do this, not any word from a preacher, but the word of your scripture. And so we ask that you would illuminate that most of all. And it's in your son's great name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, I, I have a fierce story to sort of share with you, something pretty recently. On Friday, I was coming back uh, from Jacksonville, Florida. I was preaching at a college there. Um, and we were connecting through Nashville, um, Tennessee. And the weather was pretty bad in Nashville. It was, you know, it was raining. It was storming there. So the clouds were pretty thick. You couldn't see uh, a lot outside the plane. It's just, just clouds everywhere you look. But as we began to descend, um, you know, the the plane is making its way through the clouds, and so we know we're about to land, but right as we cleared the, you know, the dense you know, fog of the clouds there, we could see the runway, and immediately, with a great shudder, the plane began to, to shake and, and, and make an ascent again, just a very rapid ascent. So we're coming down, about to land, we can see the runway, and suddenly the plane is just this steep climb. Now, as you can imagine, uh, you know, most of us on the plane were a little you know, unnerved by this. I couldn't figure out why we would be doing that. And of course, you know, I'm just a paranoid person anyway. So in my brain, I'm thinking of all the reasons why this is happening. Maybe the landing gear didn't come down. I mean, I thought I heard it come down, but you know, who knows why we're climbing again. And everyone else on the plane is beginning to look a little concerned. You can see people are, are talking to each other. They're, you know, pulling the earbuds out of their ears and they're waiting for some kind of announcement. And we just keep climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. And it almost seemed like, I mean, we're just going to, I mean, the altitude, I have no idea. We're just climbing and climbing. Eventually, we level off. Everyone's very shook up at this point, and the pilot comes on, um, on the overhead speaker, to apologize and to say that um, as they were coming down, they realized there was another plane on the runway. So we were about to either, I don't know, I mean, we were going to land on an occupied runway, so I don't know if that meant we were going to land on the plane or just too close to the plane or uh, crash into the plane or what have you. He didn't explain how this mistake got made, whether the tower cleared him for landing and, and, you know, and that was an error or he was just, you know, waiting to see until we cleared the clouds and realized that, you know, the runway was occupied. But as you can imagine, for a lot of us, it was a pretty unnerving situation. There was another fellow from Midwestern Seminary who was traveling on on the same flight. We were able to kind of debrief together on the layover. We had about 10 minutes to kind of gather ourselves and then we had to get right back on a plane and fly right back into the storm. And that was a little hairy for me. Uh, but here's what I did, and, and, and um, I don't know what anybody else was there on the plane, because um, as we were making this steep uh, you know, ascent and, and, you know, and, and we're circling, we don't quite know what's going on. Is there engine problem, landing gear problem, you know, w- what's happening here? I made a very sort of defensive gesture. So I was very afraid, and I realized what I did is I, I just took my hand and I did this. And I don't know what this is supposed to mean, but I, I went like this with my hand, as if you know, this is a force field, and if I just put it here, <laughs> something magical will keep. I don't know what I was doing. Like, as I thought about it later, you know, part of it is like, I was, af- I was afraid, so I was covering, I was, it was like an instinctual thing, I'm covering up because I'm afraid. Or maybe I don't want other people to see that I'm afraid, and so I'm just sort of shielding my face. But, man, I kept thinking about this, like, why, like, why would I cover my face as this was happening? It's not like it could stop anything terrible from happening to us. And I see sometimes footage, people very helpfully began sending me videos of all, all these near misses <laughs> playing afterwards. <laughs> like, could you wait till I'm safely in Kansas City? It'd be great. Um, and there's people who film these things. I couldn't figure out, like, how you'd have this sort of presence of mind to be like, oh, we're, you know, maybe going to die. Let me, you know, get this on my iPhone so my loved one can, can see. Like, that would not have been my instinct to do that, to film, you know, the thing. I was doing this. And it took me back to childhood, right? When you're a little kid laying in bed and you hear a scary noise or you see something scary in your room, what do you do? You cover yourselves up. You pull the blanket up over your face. Now, why would you do that? 
There's something going on. That there's an impulse there. There's an instinct there to say, if, if, if they can't see me, or if I just cover up, nothing bad will happen. What is that? Well, I think, I mean, see if you can track with me here. I think this is an impulse from the very beginning of time, actually. This is an impulse that Adam and Eve had minutes after the fall. They've disobeyed God's command. They've eaten of this forbidden fruit. And then instantly they realize how vulnerable they are. Suddenly they recognize their nakedness. They feel completely ashamed by this. They feel exposed for the first time in their entire life. And so the very first thing they do is they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves up. Not only that, but it says that even after they had covered themselves with these makeshift clothes, when they heard the Lord coming to call them to account, they go and they hide in the trees. Maybe he, if he doesn't see us, nothing bad will happen. And I think that we've been trying to hide our sin and our shame, our vulnerability, if you will, ever since. But there's a problem with this because just as the Lord came looking for Adam and Eve, when we encounter the living God, there is no hope in hiding. There isn't any amount of hiding that you can do that will ward him off. John says God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now, um, literarily or textually, this is what's called a parallelism. It's very similar to what we see in a lot of the Hebrew poetry, especially in the Psalms for instance. It's the same thought that's essentially repeated, but in a different way. So first the positive uh, vision is given, God is light, and then the same thought is repeated in sort of the negative version of the phrase, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. And the point of this emphasis, why John will kind of double down on the same thought, give it to us from two different angles, is for us to understand that no darkness can abide in the light that is God. This is how bright, this is how illuminating, this is how much light God is. What happens to darkness when you turn on the light in a pitch black room? It disappears. It's vanquished. Instantly, it goes away. And God is pure light. The kind of light God is we see throughout the pages of the Old Testament where he leads the Israelites by fire and reveals his holy law on the mountaintop. And and you remember, it's so bright, this glory, it's so impactful, this glory, that Moses' face shone. It, it, It radiated after being exposed to this light. Even if you were to hide in the cleft of a rock and the backside of this glory came by, you would be lit up. The light of God is pure and perfect It's illuminating and exposing because that's what light does. And that's what God does. In essence, what John is helping us to see is that the light of God reveals everything. Reveals everything. So here's our first point. Number one, we cannot hide from God. We cannot hide from God. But we try, don't we? I think, for instance, of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. She had a lot to hide. Not even necessarily her sin. She had a lot of sin that she was trying to cover up, but she also just had a lot of shame, just this this stigma over her. She was trying to be all by herself and to show up in this encounter, and there is this Jewish man standing there, and he's asking her some very probing questions, and she's constantly trying to deflect. She's trying to change the subject. Oh, you want to talk theology? Let's keep it up here and talk theology and, and worship buildings and all that sort of thing and geography. Let's just keep it on the surface. I'll talk spirituality with you, but please don't 
don't bring it down here close enough to where it actually begins to touch my heart. The question for each of us to ask is, to what extent are we doing that? Even in the midst of our religiosity. Seminary students, do you think that if you just study enough theology and do enough Bible studies that you can actually keep Jesus out from the areas of your heart he really means to get in touch with? Isn't it weird how we do that? Like it's some sort of force field, like some sort of bait and switch, like he'll be appeased. We make some sort of offering. Look, I'll just, you know, learn Greek and Hebrew and look, I'll just, you know, read countless systematic theologies and look, I'll just study apologetics and everything else in the world. But Jesus, don't ever go beneath that. Don't ever actually deal with what's going on inside of my heart. Are you trying to stiff arm Jesus with your religiosity? And one thing we learn about the real Jesus, one thing you should see as you read that Bible is that he's not a great respecter of personal space, is he? You may be able to keep your friends and family and and your professors and everybody else at arm's length, only letting them see what you want them to see, but you can't stiff-arm Jesus. He sees your heart, and he will go after it. Think of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. This guy was willing to give Jesus everything except what he wanted to give him. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at the checklist. Look at all these things that I've accomplished. But Jesus knew the one thing that he was hiding in his heart, and that's the one thing Jesus asked for. Oh, it's real nice you've kept all the commandments, which is a lie anyway. That's real sweet. What about your possessions? Because I know that's your object of worship. In fact, I very often think that it's the areas of our lives that we are most desperate to protect that are the very areas that Jesus wants to deal with in us. John says there's, there's absolutely no darkness in him. To the extent that you are dwelling in the dark is the extent to which you have not surrendered to the healing holiness of God. And it makes no sense. There, there's no escape from this light anyway. In Psalm 139, we see the psalmist saying, where can I go to escape from God? If I went all the way up into the sky, he's there. If I dug the deepest hole that I possibly could into the earth to bury myself, he's down there as well. There is no secret from him. Or as Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 4, there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. A couple of years ago, um, there was a a major hack um, performed on the website belonging to Ashley Madison. Now, Ashley Madison is not a person. You might be thinking, who cares who hacked Mrs. Madison? Well, it's not a person. Ashley Madison is actually a company that's specifically designed to help people have affairs. And they promise, as you come through our site, we will make sure that we can facilitate your desire to commit adultery and no one will ever know. Like it's our guarantee, complete privacy as you engage in this sin. Of course, they don't call it a sin, but why would they make it so private if it were something that were okay, right? Well, somehow the hackers got a hold of all of the user data, all the listings of the private members of the service, and they published it all on the internet. This was, of course, a violation of privacy, yes. The thousands of people, mostly men, were exposed as would-be adulterers, including politicians, actors, and even at least one semi-high-profile evangelical leader. Now, you could say that this hack ruined their lives. But really, all it did was make public the ruin of their lives that they were practicing all by themselves. 
Nothing hidden stays hidden. Even your sin, the Bible says, will find you out eventually. You can't hide from God. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. And because there is no darkness in God at all, I'd also say that if we say we walk in darkness, no one will ever know. This is so secret. This is totally private. No one will ever find out about this. We're actually lying as well because while we might be able to conceal ourselves from everyone else, we can never conceal ourselves from God. There's no blanket you can pull up to where God says, oh, can't find you, can't see you. There is no darkness so dark, no corner too hidden, no sin too secret that it's not seen by the God who is light. And you should not hide from God because he sees everything, knows everything, will eventually reveal everything. You cannot hide from God. But secondly, perhaps more intimidatingly to you, we must not hide from each other. Point number two, we must not hide from each other. This is a really curious connection that John is making here. It seems um, somewhat abrupt if you're really paying attention. And he does it later in the letter on the love of God in chapter four. He says, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So notice there that he isn't simply saying God is love and therefore you can be loved by God and you can love God in return. He is saying that, but he's basically saying, he's also saying God is love and therefore you should love others. Well, that's really interesting. And just like in our text here in chapter 1, he states it negatively as well. Just like he's saying, if you don't love others, you don't know God. How does he put it here? Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. In other words, if you walk in darkness, you're not experiencing fellowship with God. But it's not just fellowship with God that the light of God impacts. Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship. He doesn't say with God but with one another. It is true that to walk in the light of God is to have fellowship with God. That's the point of verse 6. But John writes, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Why? Why would he make that connection? I'm extrapolating here, but I think it's because if Christian brothers and sisters aren't honest and transparent and confessional with each other, we don't really have fellowship with each other's true selves, do we? We're not really in the light. We hide certain things from each other, mainly out of self-protection, out of fear, out of risk avoidance, a sense of shame perhaps, and then what actually happens is we end up not really knowing each other. We just know the best version of each other that we're able to work up when it's time to play church. And John is shining the light of Christ into the religious charade that so many of us call church. Now, no one, least of all Christ Jesus, is suggesting that being real with each other poses no risk. It can cost us. It can cost us embarrassment. It can cost us reputation. It can cost us hurt. People may judge us, reject us, but the light will expose all of this eventually anyway. And the testimony of the New Testament, which doesn't know of a church community without sin and brokenness, 
is that the cost of hiding is actually much greater than the cost of being exposed. Jesus' own brother, James, in fact, in his epistle, connects confession of sins to one another as healing. Isn't that interesting? Because the reason we don't do it is because we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to show that side of ourselves. We don't want to be that vulnerable. We're afraid. We're protecting. And James is saying, look, until you do that, you're not going to be healed. When I was serving as a pastor, I'd come to hear almost everything, almost every possible sin that someone could commit. No one ever confessed murder to me, but sometimes people would come and in the counseling office, as they're working up to confess something, it's almost like I'm thinking, this is the one. It's going to be murder this time. I can tell by the way that they're, <laughs> the way that they're shaking, it's going to be murder. And it was never murder. But what are they doing? They're hemming and they're hawing. They're nervous. They're, they're afraid is what it is. They're afraid to tell me what's going on in their heart. They don't know. I'm, I'm a, in a position of religious authority. And that's already really vulnerable. And it's my job, I saw it as my job as an under-shepherd of the good shepherd Jesus Christ to receive them as I imagined Jesus would. So people are taking a calculated risk in confessing a sin or a struggle with temptation because they have an inkling already. They wouldn't be there if they didn't have some inkling that God loves them and, and forgives them, but they're afraid that he might not. And they're really afraid that I might not. And if I hear their struggle and reject them, then it obscures their vision of God's love for them. I can corrupt their relationship in some sense or their, their vision of the gospel by the, the way I either actualize the gospel or don't in my response to their confession. Had a woman, a good friend of ours, who came to see me as her pastor, and she's shaking. And the sin that she confessed was not a small sin. It was a big sin, but it's something that was years in the past, something that she had long repented of, but she felt like she needed to tell me. And her fear was not like, you may judge me for this, but it's going to change the way you see me. Like, from now on, after this confession, you're always just going to see me as the woman who, that was her fear, but she was, really, she was willing to risk it. Had another young man, more than one young man actually, through my time pastoring, through my time in ministry, shaking over coffee, working up to something, sharing they struggle with same-sex attraction. That can be a scary thing to confess, especially, especially in church communities. Isn't that weird? It's almost safer to say, you're attracted to the same sex outside the church than it is inside. Why would that be? Let me just say this to you. If, if that's your struggle, I, I believe you're in a safe place. I know that the church generally can be a difficult place to be a sinner of any kind when it ought to be the safest. Especially since we sometimes do a good job of making it sound like this particular sin is the worst sin that anyone could ever struggle with and that if it's some kind of a special category for which there is no help. So I just want you to hear me saying, you, you don't have to believe me, but I hope that you do. We're all in this together. We're all in this special category. I can't speak for you, but if that's your fear, like, man, I, that's the one thing I could never confess. Let me, let me just say to you, there's so many of us, 
of us in this room who have wrestled with temptation, with sin, with desires, with longing, and we have been desperate for the grace of God and we have found it and we have been humbled by that experience. We would never condemn you for making the, the calculated risk of sharing that so that you can get some prayer and get some help and some encouragement. We're all in that special sin category. And to the extent that all of us are able, we want to make sure that this fellowship is an unsafe place for all kinds of sin and a very safe place for all kinds of sinners. But we're going to have to put that to the test. And we can't do it in the darkness. So I encourage you, come weary, come broken, and put us to the test of finding here the promised rest of Jesus. This is at least one member of Liberty Baptist Church who wants to pray for you. I want to hold your hand. I want to cheer you on as you pursue holiness. I only ask that you do the same for me. That when it's my turn, you don't reject me. Is that a deal? Um, A few years ago, probably about 12 years or so ago, um, read this little book, Life Together. Who's read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer? This book just turned me inside out. Um, was the particular situation, I was reading it with a men's small group in a season of my life in which I was desperately hiding. Didn't want anyone to know what was going on in my life, going on in my heart. And this book became a great chastening for me as I'm reading it with the group. And by all outward standards, all these guys just thought I was the greatest guy in the world and I was not going <laughs> to relieve their illusions And as I'm reading this thing, and it's calling me to a transparency, a vulnerability, a weakness that that I was afraid to engage in, it completely discombobulated me. This comes from um, Bonhoeffer's chapter on confession. This is what he writes. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. Is that you? You come to church, you come to small group, but you, just, you still you just feel really lonely, despite all that. Bonhoeffer says, The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because, though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Whatever you do when you go to church, don't be a sinner. Bonhoeffer says many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. But it's the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to to the God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you. A sacrifice, a work, he wants you alone. My son, give me thine heart, he quotes Proverbs twenty three twenty six. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. 
He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and to your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. And this may be where we get the common phrase. Bonhoeffer says, he loves the sinner but hates the sin. I know the reasons why we don't live transparently with each other because I I know when I'm not transparent with you all the reasons why I don't engage in that. It's because I'm afraid. I'm putting that, that hand up to my face so you won't see that I'm afraid and so that I won't be my real self to you. I'm embarrassed about what might result. I don't want to be a burden to you. We don't want to be judged. So many of us have actually been vulnerable with others and we've been utterly rejected and condemned and so it just makes us put the walls up even further. I, I would, why would I ever do that? It's never worked out. And what John is helping us to see, this is really, this is really interesting because it, it, it shows us just how liberating the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. He says that all of that essentially amounts to a distrust in God. It's a distrust of people, yes. I'm not going to share this with you because you're going to, in some way, maybe, maybe literally, but spiritually in some way, you're going you're to punch me. This is going to cost me something. I distrust you, but John is saying, you're also distrusting God. I know that people can be mean. I know people can be judgmental. I know people can act weird. Once you, you change the, the state of the relationship, once you say something and it changes their vi- version of you or their image of you. But if we believe in the gospel, we do not have a choice any longer to live in the dark. If we walk in darkness, we're lying and not practicing the truth. I'm going to be real vulnerable with you right now. It's on that plane coming down, steep incline, and I'm thinking, this is it, this is it. And that may be ridiculous. You may think, that's so silly. It happens all the time. Well, it's never happened to me. <laughs> I fly all the time, and, I, and in, in my mind, I'm like, I fly so much, I'm, there's going to be an incident at some point. Engine not going to work or something. I mean, statistically, like, it's going to happen. What will I do? Well, I can tell you, inside, I'm thinking, this is it. And you know what I was doing when this event happened? I'm about to confess to you. I'm taking a risk here. I was listening to Snoop Dogg on my iPod. Some of you are judging me right now. (laughs) And I don't blame you. I don't care. I mean, in a way I do. In a way I do. I'm I'm willing to be judged by you. To expose myself, even in this moment, that seems a little silly to some of you. To others of you, it's like, I can't believe he would even just say Snoop Dogg from the pulpit of the church. <laughs> and I, I, I feel you. I can't believe I was listening to it. That's true. He does. Now, I don't think, like, if, if now you feel convicted because, like, I just said that was bad, and now you're like, no, oh, I listened to Snoop Dogg. Like, I'm not trying to condemn you. I don't think you go to hell for listening to secular rap music. I am confident that my justification would not have been nullified by that lapse in judgment. But I sort of think, like, if I had died and got to heaven and walked up to Jesus, he'd be like, really? (laughs) That's the choice that you're making? And it's a serious point for me, actually, because 
I want to get out of this experience on earth all that the gospel would empower me to get. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I don't want to get up there and have him going, yeah, you did X, Y, and Z. You preached to all these people that you didn't know. How, how hard was that? Get to go home. They don't know what your life's really like. Do I fear, do I let fear of judgment and worry about reputation rule my life? Jesus once told a story about talents, three servants that a master gave them each money. And when he came back, two of the guys had doubled the investment that he had given them. But the only guy that the master got mad at is the one who buried his talent in the ground, afraid of doing anything with it. Do I want to face my heavenly father with sin still hidden? See, I kept it nice and in secret, I stayed nice and safe. I fooled everybody. Do I want to get to heaven having held out on you? Is that a win for me? To get to heaven and expect Jesus to say, great job, never opening up to anybody. You really maximized your time on earth with that one. And I know that it's fear that keeps us from doing this, but this is what faith is given to us for. We're not given a spirit of fear. And John is making a total connection between our fellowship with one another, our walking in the light, and our practicing the truth. It's a package deal. To believe the gospel is to turn from sin to Jesus, to turn from darkness to light, and to turn from solitude to real fellowship. Not playing church, but real communion with each other. You can affirm the gospel is true intellectually and live as if it's not true. That's the call that John is making. If God is light and you walk in darkness, what does that say about your belief in the gospel? In fact, it's only by the confidence in knowing that I'm justified freely forever by God through the gospel of Jesus that I can freely confess my sins to you. I actually wrestled over whether I should make that little jokey reference, which it really isn't a joke, but, but I knew some of you would laugh. I knew some of you would be like, that, that's what we're saying in, in church. Like he would admit, and he listens to the, like the filth. Like I, I knew, like, should I put that in there? Because it, people, it's going to change the way some people may even think about me. It may seem like a silly thing to some of you. But I thought, no. The fact that I'm afraid to say it means I should probably say it. Our job as a community covenanting around the grace of God is to help each other see the light clearly and walk in it with confidence. You may reject me. I, I don't know when I confess my sin to you, but the God who made you doesn't. And that gives me the confidence to confess to you. The whole point of church is that so no sinner seeking Jesus would have to do it alone. And it doesn't matter what category of sin or struggle you have, the church of God has much room, has as much room as the grace of God will allow. The body of Christ has no overflow room. Hello, small groups downstairs. In the kingdom, we're all in the same room. What might God do with Liberty Baptist Church if we simply opened up to him and to each other and said, Lord, do what you will, even if it's embarrassing, as long as it's honoring to you? And here's the deal, guys. This is what I really believe. When we take this risk, we finally get to see how brilliant the light of the gospel really is. Because one thing the light exposes is judgmentalism. So if I confess my sin in the light and you say, oh, filthy sinner, you know what? The light has just exposed that you don't get the gospel. 
We can stop hiding because of everything the gospel does, freeing us from condemnation, counting us totally righteous in Jesus Christ, liberating us from a spirit of fear, and, oh, how glorious is this, covering us eternally in his irrevocable love. You can't hide from God. He sees everything, and he loves you anyway. Here's my third and final point. We can be hidden by Christ in himself. Why did Jesus expose the sin and shame of the woman at the well? The one thing she was so desperate to hide. Don't anyone know about this? And Jesus is going right for it. Why is he doing it? To shame her? No, to cover her. Finally. Why did Jesus puncture the rich young ruler's self-righteous religiosity? Because he wanted him to trade it in for the treasure of himself. The same light that exposes us heals us. We get a picture of this in those early pages of the Bible. Right after that fall, Right? Adam and Eve are called to account. They've covered themselves with fig leaves. They're hiding in the trees. Do you remember what God does? I mean, they did just what, what we do. They try to hide. Well, he brings them out, and it says, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. In a way, he's saying, look, the, the fig leaves you sowed for yourself, that's, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to cover your shame. I'm going to cover you. And in almost the first kind of sacrifice, like you brought death into the world, you know what's going to cover you? Death is what's going to cover you. It's a foreshadow of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He kills animals, sacrifices animals, and covers their shame and their nakedness with the skins of the animals. This is what John says in verse 7. seven, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. We have to understand just how much this sacrifice has purchased. It delivered us from the domain of darkness. His blood speaks a better word of justice accomplished. His blood declares pardon for us, cleansing for us. And as John Calvin helpfully puts it in his commentary on this passage, this cleansing pardon is gratuitous and perpetual. Christian, you are never not covered by the blood of Jesus. So if his blood has covered your sin, why are you still walking in fear and hiding? You know, the, the one place, all, all my life I felt like an alien. Everywhere I lived, I felt like, I, I, like they know I'm a fraud. I don't, I don't belong here. And the one place that I, we finally moved to that I felt finally at home, like this is the place, but like somehow I was wired for this. This is where I should be. Eventually I got chewed up in and spit out of. And I've had a pretty good life, but I've also had some pretty good reasons to keep entirely to myself and never let you or anyone else in. That would be the safest and to some extent the most understandable way for me to live my life. But then here comes my Savior. Jesus, who ought not be embarrassed by anything. He has no sin. Tempted as we are, yet committed no sin. And while I'm piling up as many fig leaves as I can think as it might take to impress you, to make you think I've got it all together, think you, to make you think I'm a pretty big deal, I'm trying to distract you from the real me, Jesus is himself ex- exposing himself to all the hurt, all the pain, all the weakness, all the condemnation that I'm trying to avoid. I don't want any of that on me. Jesus says, all right, put it on me. I'll take it. You cannot be any more exposed than Christ was on the cross. Even naked, he hung there. And he did it for us. Can you get over that? 
This is what else John means by the light. He means a, a vision of the glory of God, the radiance of his loveliness exemplified in his cross and resurrection and ascension, the illuminating vision that captivates sinners desperate for salvation. So in the early verses of his gospel, John writes this, in him was life and the life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And shortly thereafter, he records John the Baptist crying out in his gospel, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You can't even see clearly when you're hiding. But when you're found... The Apostle Paul uses the same vision talk in Colossians chapter 3 when he says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says something that's become sort of an all-time favorite passage to me. It's in verse 3 of Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It just thrills me. My life is hidden with Christ in God. To be hidden with Christ in God. See, the gospel isn't trying to expose us to shame us. The good news is that Christ was exposed for us so that we can confess without fear and find our refuge in him. If we are hidden with Christ in God, we have nothing left to hide. It may cost us a little something, but the reward for walking in the light far surpasses keeping whatever it is we're trying to protect. Anybody a fan of C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories? I'm going to pull a Jason Deucing here and quote from Narnia. One of my favorite scenes is in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Eustace Scrub, who is as cuddly a personality as his name would imply, is a, I think Lewis describes him as a rotten little boy, <laughs> Eustace Scrub. He finds himself in a predicament. Eustace comes across a great treasure and he's overcome by greed and begins to imagine all the comforts of life that he can enjoy with this treasure. And he goes into hoarding mode. I'm going to protect like no one's going to get this. I'm, it's going to be all for me. And he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, do you remember what happened? He became a dragon. He falls asleep. When he wakes up, he, suddenly he's a dragon. Why a dragon? Well, because mythologically, traditionally, dragons are hoarders. They protect their secret fortunes at all costs. And they also physically represent that kind of protection, right? They're he- they have heavy, scaly skin. They're covered in a fleshy armor. And Eustace doesn't quite understand how he's gotten into this situation, but, and he becomes really, really afraid. And he had a gold bracelet on his arm, and when he became a dragon, it, his arm grew and the bracelet tightened on it. So it was like even that sort of symbolic of the hold this treasure has on him. It's hurting him. And he begins to cry these great dragon tears because he doesn't know how he can become undragoned. And he feels cut off from all humanity. He's not even human anymore because he's so sought to protect this thing that he wants and hide. That's what hiding will do to us as well. And then Aslan comes, Aslan the lion. And Aslan leads Eustace the dragon to a garden where there's a well. And Eustace just knows, somehow he just knows, if I can get in that water, if I can get in that well, then I can be healed. But Aslan says, you you can't go in the way that, that you are. This is what Lewis writes. Then the lion said, this is Eustace speaking. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. 
So I just lay down flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I'd had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Walking in the light may sting a little, but it is far preferable to life in the dark. And on top of that, it's the only way to healing. If we walk in the light, his blood cleanses us. Jesus will only deal with us on the plain field of reality. So come as a sinner, because you can't hide from God anyway. Come as a sinner, come as a real person to the family that God's gospel has made, because we shouldn't hide from each other. And come and be cleansed by his blood and hidden forever in the safety of Christ himself. Let's pray. Ah, Jesus, we thank you for all you've done for us. The extent to which we don't even know. Your word tells us everything we need to know to be thoroughly equipped. But your glory knows no bounds. And the atoning work that you have accomplished for us, we are just scratching the surface of. And yet we thank you that you have hidden us with yourself in God forever. We pray for all the boldness that the gospel would give us. We pray for all the comfort that the gospel would give us. Help us to love each other well and thereby show that we are really your disciples. And it's in your son's great name that we pray these things. Amen.